You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you, people, we have a really great show today. We, we have a gentleman who's not only a big rock and roller, he's an accomplished uh, classical musician. And he has a new concept album that just came out. It's called uh, Get Jack. And my guest is uh, Kip Winger. How you doing, Kip? Good. How are you, man? I'm good, man. So... You have this new album coming out, Get Jack, and it's a uh, concept album, as you said. Were you were you a fan of concept albums growing up as a kid? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, uh, there were too many concept albums out when I was. I mean, I, okay, there was like you know Aqualung and you know some other. You know, well, I mean, the Beatles did some stuff, and, but I was never like a fan of concept albums per se. I just. Uh, it's not it's a musical you know i wanted to write a bigger piece of music after i did my last classical piece with conversations with Nijinsky. i wanted to write a, a a greater bigger work and write for other singers so i either wanted to do an opera or a musical and so this is a musical and when we use the term concept album it's a concept album based on the fact that the when you do a musical it goes under so many rewrites that we've already changed a lot of it. And so this is really like what you'd think of as the director's cut of the, of the musical. Now, putting it together, how did you come up with the idea? Tell my listeners what the idea is. It's Get Jack, and uh, I listened to some of it. And it's, uh, it's very good, and it is very musically, which is great. But how did you come up with this concept? Tell them what it is, not concept. Well, tell them what it is and what it's about, and how did you come up with it? Well, it's mostly Damien's idea. He he came up with the uh, and he wanted to do a, a Jack the Ripper thing, and I was a little bit hesitant about it because of the whole Spinal Tap association. But when we talked about making it about the women, then I was like, okay, I can do this. And uh, I wanted to make a kind of Sweetie Todd meets Tommy with a little bit a little bit of Queen mixed in there. And, He's a very good storyteller and a really good lyricist. And so he, you know, we worked three and a half years on refining the story and, and refining the music. And so it kind of more, it developed over a course of two or three years. And, uh, but, you know, the, the, the basic story came from Damien. So I'm not a real, I'm not a story guy. I can write some lyrics to a song here and there, and some are good and some aren't as good as others, but. Uh, I'm not the guy that could lay out a whole story like a screenplay or a book to a, a musical or a, a novel or something like that. So mostly that came from him. Now, how did you meet Damien? It's Damien Gray. How did you meet him? I met him through a mutual friend who's a big Broadway orchestrator named Chris Yonke, who's done a lot of big-time Broadway orchestrating and conducting. And... Uh, I met him through a couple of mutual friends. Him and I hit it off because even though he's high up in the Broadway thing, he's a metalhead and he was a fan of the band. And uh, I told him to help me find a writer who could who I could work with. I met a couple people before Damien and nothing ever stuck. But then I he, he uh, introduced me to Damien. I met Damien on a Skype session and knew instantly that I could work with him. Now you said it took uh, three three years, two and a half years. Where do you start? What is what is block one when you're writing with someone who you do, you really don't know that well? You each know of each other's work. Where do you start? How does that relationship start? 
we just talked about what to do and what we thought the music you know he mentioned early on kind of an eric Satie feel in a in a if, if anybody knows the jack the ripper stuff there's a bar in london called the 10 bells which is a frequented bar by some of the women that he killed and supposedly jack himself although they don't know who he was so they're just assuming that but so we thought you know smoky bar with eric Satie music because it was 1888 and uh and so we kind of started there and then he worked up the first version of the script and i set a date to start as a start time to just crank out you know one or two things and and while he was working on the first version of it i was kind of conjuring up what i thought the sound should be i i kind of invented a scale for the whole thing and, and i was working with you know kind of how I wanted the intervals of the music to be and come up with a theme and the general harmony concept of what I wanted it to be, which which is a thread throughout the whole show. And then as the script developed, you know, I started writing one song after the other. And then I would, you know, I ended up writing a lot of melodies through what would normally be Broadway dialogue so I approached it more like an opera where everything is sung through there's a few talking moments but most of it's sung through which is unusual for a musical that's a little bit more like an opera but it's you know it's kind of in the tradition of Sweeney Todd now when you're writing it as you said you know it's how do you know where to arc I mean it's a story and as you said you're not a big storyteller if you're writing a story, you know the arcs and the valleys and stuff like that. When you're writing the music for something like that, how do you control it? How do you keep the thought process going? Well, I mean, you know, I can tell a story with music. I, I, I'm not a guy, I'm not a wordsmith that could knock out a story because I don't know the components to create a story that's worth telling. But in music, I do know the components. So, you know, I would read a scene and we would discuss, you know, how we wanted the emotion to come. And, and uh, I would refer to him a lot. You know, I'd call him up and say, what do you want this to sound like? Because I'm hearing it like this. And, you know, sometimes I'd go with his idea. And sometimes I'd go, let me do this. So let me just send this to you and see what you think of it, you know. And, and uh, you know, we had a lot of simpatico because we had the, our, our relationship worked very well in terms of seeing eye to eye on, on where we were going and how we were building the story. So a lot of it was really challenging because I've never done anything like that. I mean, I've written for film before and stuff like that, but film is very subservient to the movie. It's really like the redheaded stepchild, so to speak. <laughs> Nobody really cares, you know, but in, the music, in a musical, the music is front and center. It really has to drive the story completely. So, um, yeah, we just we would just speak, talk about it, and you know, sometimes if I had to change something a little bit to this or that, he would go. Mm. Not so much of that happened. I mean, we were we were pretty uh, pretty much on the mark, but it took me a long time to compose the music, and it took him a long time to continually develop the story to get to what's now on the quote concept album. So when you're developing it. Once you have the idea for the music and you're developing the music, how do you find the talent to sing on it? Do you, is, do you use people you know? Because I listen to some, there's a woman talking, you know, singing, and you said there's five different women. How do you find that talent? And are you very 
picky because it is a very dear to your heart project. Very picky, but Damien's been in the theater world his whole life, so he knew, for example, Eden Espinosa, who's a very well-known Broadway singer, Katie Thompson, uh, Carissa Hogland, uh, and I called up Carrie Manalanco. It's just I just emailed her out of the blue because I we, we were looking on YouTube for people that we thought might be good, and she blew me away. So we called her up, and she agreed to do it. And Levi Christ, we had a really difficult time coming up with somebody who would be able to play piano and sing the part and act it. I called, I emailed Levi out of the blue. I just found him on the internet and sent him a message on Facebook. And thankfully, he, he, he got back to me. And then PJ Griffith uh, is a very, he's in Rock of Ages right now. He's a lead in Rock of Ages. And he was a friend of Damien's. And so we just kind of put it together between cold calls and friends and uh kind of zeroed in on who we wanted to do it and you know yeah i, I mean i i spent a lot of time working on the vocals and, and re, we we recorded it all at electric ladyland and i added it for i don't know it took me two or three months to edit all the vocals and no. uh go ahead no i was gonna say now when you when you're sitting there with all that good talent is it like Hollywood? Do you sit down and have a table read? Is there rehearsals? Or do you just go straight to the studio because you want to get started on it? Yeah, that was the interesting learning curve for me because I have never done it. So we we, we put on a workshop. We, we, we rehearsed the whole thing for, I don't know, it was, I can't remember now, it was seven days or something where everybody learned the music and then we put it on in front of an audience. All to my tracks. And then we did that again. Well, after we did that the first time, everybody knew the music very well, so we went into the studio after that first week and we recorded what you hear now is the album. But after we did that, we did another... Well, we've done three table reads where you sit around a table and read it, refining the story. And then we did another workshop. We've done two other workshops since then, and the story's evolved quite a bit since what's what you hear now on the concept album. Like I say, the concept album came out of the first workshop, and it's really like the director's cut of this. Now, when you had the after the first workshop, and you're workshopping it, I mean, getting prepared for it, did stuff change after that first workshop? Did you sit there and say, "This isn't working. We got to do this. We should put this here." Yeah, absolutely, but not on the album. We 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 recorded the album with exactly what what I went to the first rehearsal with, and then after that, it all started changing. Now, I know you played classical music too. How does this? How do you think this will convey to your fan base? And I guess you have two different fan bases. But who is this? Is this? Is this for you also? We're getting a new fan base because you have the musical fan base. Or how do you see this album playing out with people that listen to you? I've been very lucky that the the, the people that enjoy my music understand that I've. Um, I don't do like a cookie cutter branding. I uh, I have three distinct areas in which I work, and this is now a fourth one, but more like, you know, the winger thing with me and Reb, and when Reb and I write, it's a very distinct sound. And then I've got my solo albums, which are much more like experimental pop, where I don't have any rules. And then I do my classical composition, which is very... Uh, I try to stay within the bandwidth of that whole world. And then now the musical thing, I try to speak the language of the territory that I'm in. And I don't think about 
the demographic. I think about the projects that I want to work on, and I try to deliver them to the very highest level that I can do. I set my bar very high, and I just feel like it's all organically grown, man. If somebody somebody who likes my music follows me into this area, then awesome. If they don't, you know, that's fine. I mean, I just, uh, I'll gain new uh, friends and fans from the, from the Broadway world that, you know, that is all new to me, but uh, I don't think about it in terms of who's this going to appeal to or anything like that. I just try to make a cool project and, you know, I always try to bite off something bigger than I can chew and see if I could digest it, you know. Now, you have so many different, as you said, different musical areas. When did you start getting interested in music? Was it as a kid or how did this, this start? Yeah, man, I was in a band with my two brothers, my two older brothers, uh, and another kid from the neighborhood. We had a four-piece band, and my parents were in a jazz band. My mom sang and played cocktail drum, and my dad played bass in a trio with another guy that played piano. So I remember from very, as long as, far back as I can remember, I mean, they were playing in clubs, and, uh, and they brought us, you know, instruments at a very early age, and, you know, of course, we you know play together, so we had a band I mean, I was playing professionally for a few dollars by the time I was eight years old, you know, so. Wait, um, wait, eight years old? What what instrument? What, what were you playing? What instrument? Bass. Bass and sang. We all sang and we played bass and my dad would take us to the gig and and uh, we played, you know, the, ele- the elementary school or the, we'd play, we'd get some, you know, some gigs and then it developed from elementary school to the junior high to the high school to the clubs and, and uh, you know I've just every cover song of the 70s known to man and I went through every incarnation of different genre changes from you know I remember when the Beatles came and then Led Zeppelin and then disco and you know punk and all that stuff I mean I went through all that and I played all that stuff uh, and then when I was 16 I that's when I started studying classical guitar but I learned very early that I didn't really want to be a great instrumentalist so I don't actually quote play classical music I just hear the music so I compose the music and put it in front of the players that can do it I'm not I'm not I'm a good instrumentalist and I feel like I'm a better singer than instrumentalist but I'm not you know I'm not one of these guys that uh Now, sixteen. I mean, what what drew you to classical music when you're sixteen? I mean, a lot of us who listen to rock and roll and stuff like that, and different albums of Steve Miller Band, Sticks. What brought you to classical music at that at that young age? Because it is a pretty young age, unless you're involved in playing in a high school orchestra. Well, a lot of people, like the the people that end up in Juilliard, they they start at six years old playing piano. So that was actually late, but. Um, I was the kind of person that recognized, well, I got very, uh, I was very drawn to different kinds of music when I heard Bach and Baroque music especially. So I wanted to learn classical guitar just to become, you know, more engaged in that side of it. And then I took ballet, which really opened my whole horizon to Stravinsky, Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, you know, all the kind of great ballet composers, Debussy, Ravel. Um, and 
that's when I really was like, wow, people wrote this music. Oh my God, that's a whole nother deal. So I listened a lot for a very long time, took some music lessons, tried to, you know, I didn't read and write. I, I, I did do piano so I could kind of read bass and treble clef and stuff. And of course I could read treble clef from guitar, but you know, as time went on, I, I, I procrastinated, quite frankly, a lot, because I knew at one time in my life that I wanted to be a classical composer, and it wasn't until I was 35 when the grunge thing took over the 80s thing, and, and uh, uh, well, we were all kind of out of a job, and I thought, well, I'm going to just go back and study, so I went to University of New Mexico and found a composition teacher, theory, composition and theory teacher, who kind of put me through the rigorous training of what you would do at university but i was 35 by then you know so and then i spent easily 10 years just in the books trying to learn how, learn you know how to do it all well you said you know the grunge came along and so you guys were out of a job is that very frustrating and it seems like for you it was actually very rewarding because you went an avenue that you procrastinated about well, I was like adapt and overcome, you know, and I was never, I never, when we made it big, I was like, okay, this could last for the rest of my life or one more week. You know, I was never, I never felt secure in the idea that I was a big rock star or anything like that. And I was way more interested in music, learning how to be a good musician. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to be able to write music and have other, have my colleagues go, yeah, that's good work. You know, that was important to me. So it still is the most important thing to me. Now, so I, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, so I, you know, I mean, my whole mission in life is to try to just be, you know, be a good, good musician. I mean, I, with every music, with every piece I write, I feel like I'm begin, I'm starting over, you know. Now, how did you get to, as you said, the rock star status? What, what happened? What was your first break? What got you on the, the map? Was it, was it writing something for kicks or what was it? Yeah, I think that was my first published piece. And then, uh, I, uh, got into Alice Cooper and I wrote a little piece for Alice Cooper, but I'd written, you know, I, I was writing and recording demos actively since I'd, you know, been very young, 12 years old. So I think I wrote my first song at 12, you know, and so it was always about the quote originals, you know, and uh, just you know, I mean, listen, I've written a lot of bad songs, okay? I mean, just really like bad songs, and then you know, every once in a while you pop out a good one, you know, and then uh, and try to overcome your weaknesses, and and uh, that's when I met Red Beach. I was like, okay, great, you're an amazing guitar player with great ideas, and I'm kind of a I've got some good ideas. Let's put these ideas together, and I know how to arrange them. So let's do that, you know. And that's kind of where that all began, really, with creating a sound that would get me there. So you start creating the sound. Did you? Where do you go once you get that sound? Because it's a music industry; it's hard to get a record deal. Where did you? What was your path to getting that first record deal? Well, I met Bo Hill 
the producer in Denver. He was living in Denver when I was 16. I think we were the first band he ever produced other than his own band. And so him and, he worked with me and my brothers. And then when that, my, me and my brother's band broke up, I uh, moved to New York and was waiting tables. And he was very generously hiring me on gigs when he could. And, uh, you know, he produced kicks and submitted that bang bang balls of fire track and I got that and then there was uh, you know he called me one day and said I need bass on four songs on this Alice Cooper record that I'm producing you know and so I went up there and at that point I was a very good bass player I mean look I, I can play bass you know but um, I really I did a good job on that record and I Kane Roberts was the guitarist and he said hey you know mentioned to Alice if, if we go on tour that you'd like to go and maybe you can you know come out on the road with us and so I did that and Alice was into it and, and uh, you know so got that gig and you know we kind of took off from there I, I decided early on that I didn't really want to be a sideman and Alice was very generous to support me in my endeavors to go off on my own and, and uh is still I consider one of my greatest mentors and and uh, you know kind of piecing it together I mean look anybody in a band that grows up in a rock band knows that it's really just a battleground of adapt and overcome I mean you just kind of you don't have a you don't have a plan B man you know so you just kind of go for it so winger when does winger start getting their first breaks uh, we got a record deal in 88 and the record came out in late 88. It was dead in the water for six months, but we had an agent named Nick Karras who really helped us out. He got us on the Scorpions tour and, and we toured with them for a long time and that, and then the video took off and then the song took off. And so we kind of got it up and running. And by the end of the maybe year and a half, we'd sold a couple million albums on that. So, uh, you know, we're lucky, man. But we were working very hard and, and right place at the right time. Although, you know, we came very early. I mean, we, if we'd come three years earlier with the same album, it might have worked out even better. You know, I don't know. Now, do you think vid did videos help you at all? Because it's so funny. I talk to people and videos used to be so important. And, you know, you're, you're a good looking guy. So the video is going to help you. Uh, do you think the video also played a part in your group becoming more popular? Absolutely. I mean, Rev and I were writing the first album. We had MTV on nonstop. And, you know, to my left was David Coverdale and to my right was Def Leppard. So, you know, we kind of followed suit in that and, and uh, you know, did our best to, you know, kind of get in the, get in the flow of it. The mistake we made is that we were much more progressive than, you know, most of the bands. And we didn't really... We were a little bit misrepresented on that, but it was our own fault. You know, we just, we kind of did the Bon Jovi vibe and, and as far as the way we looked, you know, and so, but it worked for us. I mean, we had a great time and I don't have any regrets about it. It was a little bit, you know, we were, it was a little bit more under the hood in Winger than, than, than say a poison. But, you know, having said that, I mean, Poison was way more successful than Winger. So, you know, there's no value judgment. It was just a kind of a different thing. 
Now, as Warren's getting bigger, bigger, how is your life changing? Because, you know, it has to be bigger shows. Um, how are you staying grounded? Oh, like I say, I mean, I never believed it. It was just kind of like, this is what you do now, and, and you you just take a day at a time. And I, and I knew that it could go away as fast as it came. So for me, I didn't change. Everybody around me changed because all of a sudden I'm a famous person and everybody else is all like, you know, they all change, you know, but I didn't, I never changed it. I mean, if you ask any of my friends, I'm exactly the same as I was when I was 18. Now you guys broke up just because it was a, the music was changing or, or how did that, what, what happened? With winger? Yeah. We never broke up, man. We just were in the onslaught of grunge and we were like, okay, there's nothing to do here. Let's disband for a while and go our separate ways and wait for the, wait for the, you know, the hurricane to dissipate. And then in 2002, we got offered the Poison Tour, and we went out with them. And, you know, and then uh, in 2006, we came out with a new album and, and uh, you know, kind of uh, did some touring and then did another one in 2008 or, see, 2006, 2010, and then 2014. So we've been doing a record every four years normally. It's a bit of a time in between, but each guy in the band is very busy, you know, so we're, um, you know, we did it and when we could. Rev's been the longest surviving member of Whitesnake, you know, he's been in the band 15 years, you know, so uh, we, we get together with Winger as a labor of love because we really enjoy playing with each other and it's our first love and, um, you know, now we, we're uh, getting ready to make a new album and, and uh, you know, we'll see if we, we might just completely come back together like we did in the beginning. Now, you had moved to New Mexico when you started your solo career to, to study. How did that, how did those, that studying affect your solo work when you were starting out? Well, I didn't go to New Mexico to study. I went to New Mexico because I was living in Miami and got hit by Hurricane Andrew. And I was like, man, I'm going to go to the desert. <laughs> and I had some friends in Santa Fe. So I moved to Santa Fe and I, and I did a couple. I did an album there. And then I, my first wife passed away in a car wreck. And then, and, and you know, I couldn't really, the, the band was disbanded. So I thought, okay, now I'm going to study classical music. So I did it then. And I put another album out then. And, it, and so... You know, it was really like food to a starving man, you know, for studying music theory. Because it was like I'd, I'd taken the rock songwriting as far as I could go. And then to get some, you know, an injection of new ideas and, and free my mind of, I mean, I don't know how into music theory you are, but I mean, I, I studied post-tonal music and got really into like abandoning keys and, key, you know, traditional diatonic music and it really freed me up to I had a whole creative explosion during that time so uh, it affected me profoundly um, whereas before you might get stumped on a song because you don't know where to go and now I'm like you know I had to reel myself in because there were so many possibilities what would you say your focus and sound was for your solo albums? There wasn't one. I was just completely, uh, I said, 
my only criteria when I first did my solo albums was that I wasn't going to use super heavy metal guitars and that I wasn't going to scream like uh, I did in 17. I was going to develop a whole new way to sing. Those were the only criteria. Everything else was completely experimental. I was heavily influenced like Peter Gabriel uh, and that whole kind of English pop thing. And... Uh, which I had been in way before I was even in Winger. Uh, I was a huge fan of English pop in the 80s. And so I kind of did a bit of my take on that. And out of that became a sound over the next three albums that I did. Now, how would your writing style changing, especially after since you got more into theory? Did you notice a change in your writing style Well, I mean, you know, song, a good song is a good song with a good arrangement. So the, the architecture of the stuff doesn't change much, although, you know, you can stretch the template here and there, um, mostly harmonically and freeing up ideas for sounds and arrangements that you wouldn't normally hear and melodies that weren't so typical, you know. A lot of rock songs you'll hear singers will write a melody and it's all like blues, you know, minor third one. Na 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 I mean that's like, you know, half the rock songs that came out of the eighties, you know. And so I started just really expanding my horizons melodically. And I have a if I do say I have a gift, it would be for melody, you know. So the rest of it is comes hard fought uh, a lot of studying and a lot of painful throwing out of ideas that I don't think are up to par um, but I can write a melody and uh, I tried to make those melodies more and more unique and I learned devices um, by studying classical composition you know I would learn more devices to be able to expand on those ideas now, the solo work, I know my friend Elliot McGuff, uh, he said you were in Hickory the other night. What do you do when you go on the road on, the, on, on, like on a solo show that you're just doing? I know you have a few shows coming up. What, what do can people expect to see when that happens? Man, I play with a percussionist, and we uh, play all the winger hits, and I do a lot of my solo stuff, and I sing a song for my musical, and I bring people up to sing very audience interactive funny i like to talk to the audience and just have fun i mean it's all there's nothing uptight about it and and uh you know i've I've developed it i was one of the originators of the whole unplugged thing i mean i've been doing it since 95 96 so and it just developed organically over time you know people would request more songs and more songs and now i can easily knock out a two-hour show and uh you know, I'll play everybody's requests and, you know, make sure I get all the hits in there. I love to play all the music. There's nothing I don't I don't enjoy playing and singing at my solo stuff. Now, the classical. How did you tackle that mountain? Because I know you, you're, I believe you were a Grammy nominated. How did you, how did you, you knew you wanted to do it, but how does one go about getting into that? Especially because you are known as a rock star. I don't know if, you know, classical musicians are snobby or I mean how did how, how did you get on that path and then start becoming successful in it 
You know, I mean, I would just say that I was true to my heart, really. I mean, I, it sounds cheesy, man, but I was, uh, I really had a love for the genre and I really wanted to learn it and I wanted to speak in their language completely. I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want any favors and I didn't want any, anything, uh, given to me. I wanted to earn it all. And, uh, so I worked really hard to understand how to articulate an oboe, for example. I and mean, there's a lot of stuff to learn in their language, and they don't want you to come in and and and, and expect them to interpret your music just because you're a famous person. I mean, it doesn't work like that, you know. So I went out of my way to be as articulate as I could, and uh, and I'm still learning because it's a never-ending process. So I don't. No, I don't know everything by any stretch of the imagination, but I really wanted to earn it on an organic level, and that's kind of how I went about it. Um, and I had a lot of lucky breaks, man. I, I uh, A good friend of mine introduced me to choreographer Christopher Wielden, who's a super famous choreographer, and he happened to like a piece I sent him and choreographed it on San Francisco Ballet, which became quite a hit, and... Uh, and then from there, the conductor there dug my music and wanted to make an album. So I wrote Najinsky and and uh, we made an album. And, and uh, I mean, it all just happened very organically. I was uh, just trying to do my best work and I was very committed to it. And uh, I will say that I've got a lot of plates spinning and it's it's difficult to manage it time-wise. Now, you said, like, the oboe, you know, figure out how this... How do you figure out all these instruments, like the piccolo? There's instruments that people don't even know that are in, in classical music. How do you go about finding them and, and learning what you're going to convey? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of books on orchestration. I mean, you can, you can just go on Amazon and buy a book on orchestration and start reading it and then go find a piccolo player uh, at your local orchestra and say, hey, man... How does this instrument work? What are the thing? What are the do's and don'ts? Like, can you play this? And you write something out, and they go, "Well, it'd be better if it was like that." I've spent a lot of time with a lot of different players in every section, learning about what they want to see on a score, what's possible, what isn't. You have to know the range of every instrument. You have to know general fingerings and ways. To, like, for instance, the wind and brass. I mean, you have to calculate how long they can hold a breath you know or string players you know what's possible with speed on a riff or something like that and you know the ranges of the instruments i said that already but i mean you know and blending and uh you know some, some the, the general sonorities of what sound like if it does a clarinet sound good with a viola or you know this kind of stuff and, I, and a lot of it comes very naturally to me and that's why i do it i don't recommend it if you're not, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you if you can live without it, absolutely don't do it because it's really, really. It, for me, I, you know, Brahms said com composing is torture, and I'm with I'm with him. I mean, it's very, very torturous. You know, um, it's not enjoyable, but it's something that you have to do. So, um, you know, people think of Kip Winger. You know, Mister Seventeen. You know, the happy go lucky rock star. I couldn't be farther. It's I'm the antithesis <laughs> of what people think. I mean, I'm the dark and brooding artist guy, you know, and I, uh, 
I have a lot of fun, but but uh, I take it extraordinarily seriously, and I'm very hard on myself. Now, with the classical music, where do you want to go with that now? Is it do you want to keep doing that because now the music? I mean, how you said you know you said how you have so many plates going. How do you choose what plate is going to be served next? I just go on a timeline, like what's up in the queue for what needs to happen next. You know, I've got a thing I got to deliver by, you know, June of next year for a classical piece. You know, I want to get a record with Winger out by 2020. And, you know, so things just, you know, I've got a lot of songs for a solo album, but they're, you know, these other things take precedence. So, and I'm gigging all the time because that's the main source of my income. So, um, I'm always a bit behind the eight ball on catching up, but I just keep putting stuff in the queue, you know. Well, how do you, how do you, I mean, you, when you have a deadline, you said it's one thing, and you write songs. How do you write from different genre to genre? If there's not a deadline, I mean, you know, you said you have a bunch of uh, solo songs, then you want to do a winger album, then you, you have a classical piece you can do. How do you, can, how do you figure out which one you're going to write? Is it just how you're inspired that day, or is it something yeah. that you... Well, no, I'm I'm very I'm uh, with my with the symphony. I'm writing my symphony number one, and I'm like I'm scheduling time to write, and I get down to business. You know, I don't wait for inspiration. You know, that's I believe that that's complete farce. You know, if you want to be a good musician, it's like going to the gym. You know, you can't have pumped up muscles if you don't go to the gym and do four reps on each muscle. You know, every day. You know, you just can't do it. So I. I schedule writing time and, and then I go and then and within that I use inspiration to go okay well, I'd like to work on this right now or that part of this music or you know I might take a detour to work on a solo song or something because I got an idea immediately in my head um, and it's you know dude I'm like I'm 40 years in so I mean I'm pretty you know I'm not a newbie at it I can I can organize pretty well you know and uh, and I also am very good at knowing what song goes with which brand you know now the record comp the record business is there a, was is there a difference between when you're releasing something that's you know classical compared to something rock how how do how do those businesses differ oh, i'm sorry say it again the phone broke up uh the record the, when you release a classical album and you l- release the rock album how how do those record companies differ like you know you all hear stories about crazy stuff with the old rock days and trying to get people to you know the record deals but classical you never hear about these crazy classical record executives how do the two worlds differ when you're releasing an album well i mean listen nowadays with the internet and what's going on now it doesn't there isn't really anything different i mean there's a different template for um the like the people that all the same man you know you put out a record for release and digitally or on a cd it's all the same there's no difference it's just that maybe the people that work at naxos which is a classical label they're a little bit different personality types than that might work at uh, my record company for the rock band frontiers you know they're uh they're a lot of they're they're a small group of rocker guys from italy you know they're going to behave a little differently but the process is exactly the same because it's really just there's no the only thing different is the actual music think about it like like breakfast cereal you know there's cocoa puffs corn flakes frosted flakes 
you know, the content is different, but the way to, to market it, it's all the same, man. You just uh, you ship it out to the grocery store and see who wants to buy it. Now, what was it like getting nominated for a Grammy? And did you go to the awards? I did go to the awards, and it was absolutely amazing. I wasn't expecting it. I thought it was the biggest long shot on the... You know, I mean, I was like, to get nominated for you know classical composition and to be on the list of the other four composers that I was on was, I mean, it's the greatest honor of my whole life, man. Uh, it was absolutely surreal because I, you know, looking from where I came from to get all the way from where I came from and traverse all that ground to get over into that arena, speaking on their language and getting respect in that genre by those people because you know i know what it's like with being on the grammy committee and man it's not easy to get past the, the judgment of the judges man i mean it's hard man so that was a great honor and absolutely uh you know i'm just surprised man i was i was very happy let's put it that way and i felt like you know the best way to come back from Beavis and Butthead is to get a Grammy <laughs> nomination for classical composition because then, you know, Lars and all those, the Metallica with the darts on the poster and all that stuff, you know, I could have drank myself to death like Janie Lane or I could have put my nose to the grindstone and pull myself out of it on a, on a level that other people, you know, frankly, wouldn't want to take it on, you know. Now, you had mentioned earlier that you took ballet when you were younger, and then in San Francisco they had a ballet production. What was that like for you, for someone who, probably when he took ballet, was to learn music and just get in touch with that musical type? What was it like when you saw a ballet from your music? Funny thing is, is I always, when I studied ballet, I was like, man, I want to write music for ballet, because I was a good dancer. I could have been a dancer. I didn't get the training early enough. Uh... But I was very in love with it. It was incredible. And, and so I wanted to write music for ballet. And so to, to be able to put my music... And, and by the way, I mean, I went right to the top. I mean, Chris choreographed on the greatest American ballet company in the, in the, whole, in the whole United States. I mean, incredible, man. So it was a thrill of a lifetime. I mean, come on, it was incredible. So... You know, ironically, I've I've uh, solicited my music to a lot of choreographers to no avail, and so now I'm writing purely concert music and been accepted in the as a concert composer without the adjunct of the ballet, which is, in my mind, even more incredible. But I started out just my, you know, just little old me wanted to write some ballet music. Really, I mean, that's where I started. Now, when you are making these, doing these compositions. Do you, do you know when they first start playing it if something's a little bit off and do you fine-tweak that or do you let the musician go with it? No, man. No, I mean, uh, at first it was very intimidating to go in and, uh, you know, try to fix scores on the spot because I'm not a great sight reader and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nerve-wracking, man, you know, um, but I'm pretty adamant about fixing stuff on the fly now. Uh, I, now that I know, I, you know, at first it was a little bit like, okay, prove yourself, dude. 
<laughs> now, now that I've now that I've proven myself, I could I could like take a deep breath and walk up to the you know concert master and say, "Hey man, you know, could you change this thing over here?" You know, and a lot of a lot of the section people. And by the way, classical musicians and they're not snobby, man. They're really cool. I mean, they're they get a bad rap. They're all very open to all kinds of music, and and people forget that. Yes, they do the classical series, but one of the most popular things is, is the pop series. So, you know, Sticks will come in and play with the orchestra or, you know, the Eagles with the orchestra. I mean, they're doing pop music all the time, all over the world in every orchestra, you know. They're very open-minded. All they want is to play good music, you know, but that's all anybody wants, you know, to be involved with. You don't want to be involved with bad music. So my experience is that they've been very welcoming. Yes, I had to prove myself in their language. They didn't want to. They didn't want to, you know, do me any favors. But once I was able to prove myself, and they, everybody's super generous, and and uh, it's a fun environment to be in. Well, you know, you talk about the orchestras. I saw the Who backed by an orchestra, and it was uh, the violinist they had was amazing. At Bob O'Reilly, she just crushed it. Would you ever think of doing? winger with an orchestra yeah i thought about it and then i thought i'd sit down until the feeling goes away man you know <laughs> I, I did i did one orchestra show with the colorado uh symphony where it's where i'm from and i think you know that was enough for me i i don't like to mix that genre although on my on my musical i did but my my composition is very integrated it's not like rock band with some arrangements behind it. My musical integrates the two things seamlessly when one one takes up where the other leaves off. In a, in a rock band with an orchestra behind them, it's it's fighting with volume levels and 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 oftentimes the arrangements are very banal and it's just kind of like the effect is gone now because it's you know when it was first originated by a few people in the beginning maybe it was cool, you know, but it's not my thing, man. Like I, I, I want. I stay pure to the genre of classical music, pure to the genre of rock music. I mean, that's not to say that I may do it sometime, but it's a long shot. I don't love that. Now I know that in February you're playing the uh, Monsters of Rock cruise. What's that like when you get back in front of the, a rock and roll crowd, and it's a crowd that you know has aged. Because, I mean, I'm sure you have touched a lot of generations because people bring their kids. But what's it like when you get on stage with your rock and roll, with Winger, and people are just singing back to you? Do you still get that, that great feeling? Because you've also dealt with a whole orchestra doing your music, so you've had two just amazing feelings. What is it like, though? Does a rock star in you come out when you're playing and the crowd's going crazy? Sure, man. I mean, it's I'm a I'm a I'm a born performer. I feel very comfortable on stage, and it's you know the thing about music is that music is interactive with an audience. I mean, you, you know, music in your living room where you're playing it. I mean, it's that's okay, but that's if you want to practice. I mean, if you really want to do music, you got to get in front of an audience or put your music in front of an audience. You know, that's where it's at. It's a music is an emotional language, so you're speaking a dialogue with the emotional body of human beings, you know, and that's where the, the excitement comes from is that you're actually having an emotional dialogue with people, man, you know? So, uh, 
one is not better than the other, dude. It's it's uh, if I if I have a big giant piece of music with an orchestra, I'm still connecting to the same emotional body of a human being that I would be if we're playing, you know, uh, a, a heavy rock song in front of a rock audience. It's just a different bandwidth of emotion. So that's the only way I look at it. Now, when it comes to orchestra, which is there one that you can definitely say is your favorite instrument to deal with, and one that's your least favorite? Orchestra? Yeah. Oh God, no! I don't have enough experience to even say that. I've been very lucky to work with some great orchestras, and I have not yet worked with an orchestra that's bad. No, I mean, so... I mean, I mean, an actual instrument that frustrates you, or an instrument you just love to write for. Oh, I mean. I love to write for bassoon, and I'm getting better at writing for solo violin. I'm 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 going to write a violin concerto next year, and so I'm I'm really getting into that. That's that's extremely difficult, but I like uh, I I'm I'm really in love with the bassoon, and I like sections. You know, I like to play with sounds and the winds and stuff like that. And of course, strings are the heart of this of the orchestra, but. I don't really have any favorites. I mean, I, it's it's each each instrument in the orchestra and beyond, by the way, because there's a lot of composers that add in or add in instruments that that aren't organically in an orchestra. But it, you just think of it like the the human soul. I mean, you're speaking you speak to different uh, levels of the DNA in the in the emotional body. You know, like an, an oboe can speak to a very specific part of your soul. And a cello can speak to a very specific part of your soul, and they're not the same. Now, you mentioned you might have a new Winger album coming out. What will the focus of the music be on that? Do you, are, is it going to be always creating the same sound, or how is the writing process for that? Me and Reb have a thing, man. We sit down with a drum machine, and we knock out Winger songs, and, you know, and, and I just try to make sure that the bar is raised high enough to where we're not repeating ourselves in a banal way. You know, we... Uh, I don't want to just do the same song over and over and over again, like so many rock albums. You hear bands that's trying to recreate their past. You know, I want to move forward and create some cool music that stands the test of time and raises the bar for us. You know, so for every Winger album, there's something different on there that wasn't there before. You know. Now, what is your long-term goal for Get Jack? Well, hopefully we get in a theater and, you know, we have, we, uh, I mean, being on Broadway or being in London, you know, I mean, just trying to get it up on stage, man. I mean, it's been a learning curve and, and like, I live my life with no expectation. What I do is I try to do the best work I can, hope for the best and, uh, you know, see where it takes me. I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't cry over things that don't work out. I mean, I've. Like I say, I just put the be- put my best foot forward and let the universe dictate where it's going to take me. Well, good luck with Get Jack. And it would be great if it was in a theater. It would be a lot more work for you because you'd probably have to be hanging out on Broadway a lot. But that doesn't really seem like work. No, it would be awesome, man. I'd love it. Well, I, I want to thank you, Kip, for coming on. Uh, you've, had, you've had such a great career. And it's just it's amazing because, as you said, so many rockers, they don't have that separate side. I talk to a lot of rock and rollers and a lot of them don't even read music and they just learn by themselves. And it's just impressive how much stuff you know. Uh, I, thank you. But I will say that, you know, 
because doesn't reading music doesn't mean anything. It's just a different form of communication. I mean, you know, Paul McCartney, they, they the Beatles did all their their whole catalog. They didn't read music. There's nothing about reading music that means anything. It's only a it's a vehicle for me to communicate in a different genre. I, I would never ever in a billion years put any higher value on any one genre or any way to get to the means to an end you know i would anybody's means to an end is their means to an end and art is art you know so there's no there's no uh greater value in anything that i or anybody else does over anybody else man you know that's just i do my i do it the way my brain works other people you know do it the way their brain works and that's the glory of of uh you know art and what we can give back to the world and all of that kind of thing does your brain ever get tired yeah, so much going oh, yeah. on. Oh man, I'm like I'm constantly overwhelmed, you know. But I mean, I just uh, I long for the day I could just sit in the, in Paris and write string quartets. But I mean, that ain't gonna happen anytime soon. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for coming on. People, go to kipwinger.com, dot com. The uh, new CD now. The new CD's coming. It's you got a pre sale up to the nineteenth, I believe. Yeah. So if anybody, you know, you can go to getjack.com dot com and. Uh, pre-order the album there uh, 19th and we're doing a guitar giveaway that's going through the 24th i believe uh maybe don't quote me on that it might be the 26th the week after the release of the album and uh it's a really cool guitar giveaway um we've had a facebook ad out there you can see the guitar and stuff but uh yeah we if you dig it we'd love it if you ordered it and uh if you don't dig it not a problem so people go check it out and you will dig it it's 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 good stuff. Uh, check out and go to kipwinger.com. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 725 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. You can Twitter, follow me, at coopertalk, and my Instagram is coopertalk1. Just remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.